My name is Jay. Welcome to Cultivate. Uh, it's just a, a great honor to have you here. We are uh, in the middle of a series that we've been doing called Rethink, if you haven't been here with us before. And we're going through the Gospel of Mark. and We're highlighting the life of Jesus, and we're trying to gain from his life how we should live our lives in reflection of who he is and what he's done for us. And so we're, we're hitting all the highlights as, as he goes through his life, and we are now just a few weeks from Easter, and uh, we're really in crunch time in terms of Jesus' ministry and really his life because it is uh, the last 24 hours of his existence here on earth that we're going to be looking at from this point forward um, at a very, very crucial time. And uh, it's crucial for us, too, because we come to a point in the story where we see Jesus huddle around and do something that is often referred to as the Last Supper. Sometimes it's called communion. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Table. And it's really a model that we look at in Scripture. We see what Jesus did with his disciples, and it's a continuation of what we do here in the church. And if you know anything about uh, being here, if you've been here before, you know that we celebrate communion each and every week. Uh, we have bread, and we have not wine, but juice down here. And uh, we have people that, that come forward after every message. And part of how we respond to what God is doing in us is that we participate in this meal in the very same way that Jesus and his followers did 2,000 years ago. And it's an element that we've had as part of our service for quite a while now. Um, and so... It's important for us to understand as we come to the point in Jesus' story where he celebrates this, what it really means for us. It's vitally important. And so I have really just one goal this morning, is to kind of set up for all of us what it means to actually walk down that aisle, take the bread off of the table, dip it in the juice, and then eat it. Um, because that is exactly what Jesus does. Um, with his followers. And so for us, I want to kind of set the table, so to speak, so that we would understand, really understand, maybe for the first time, what it is that we're actually doing when we walk down that aisle and what Jesus is communicating to us as his followers when we do that. Um, and so if you're a, a Christ follower, a Christian, um, my prayer for you today is that you would really participate in this maybe with fresh eyes for the first time. And for those of you who maybe aren't quite up to speed on this Jesus thing and you're not quite sure if it's for you, that really today would kind of be for you the final piece that's necessary for God to open up the doors for you, to be able to see who he is and what he does for you and in your life, maybe for the very first time. And I realize this is kind of a big goal, but uh, we like big goals around here, don't we? So let me kind of start us out this way. I want to ask this question of you. What would be the last thing that you tell your children if you got one shot to tell them? If you know, as maybe as a parent, that you have one chance to tell your children one thing and you need to be able to communicate to them the most important thing that you will ever communicate to your children, what do you say to them? <laughs> it's a pretty important question. I'm going to give you a chance to think about it for a second. 
Now, I don't know if you've thought about it before or not. Um, I had kind of a chance to think about it anew uh, yesterday. And it's funny because I, uh, I was preparing this message earlier in the week, and I'm thinking to myself, I've got all the elements in place. I'm pretty confident about what I'm going to share, but I, I just don't, I don't feel a burden yet for, for what I need to share. And it's a very important thing, and I know that we need to really wrap our minds around it as people. But I'm just not quite there yet, and I'm not sure how to frame it. I'm not sure how to make it personal and make it real. If you ever pray one of those prayers, immediately after you pray it, you think, why in the world did I just do that? I just opened up something that I have no idea what God's going to do now, but I know it's not going to be pleasant, right? And so I was praying this earlier in the week, and of course, uh, God in his sense of humor and timing allows me to experience something that I didn't want to experience, um, but I think that will make today's message a little bit more real. Um, If you are friends with me on Facebook or are friends with the friends of mine on Facebook, you have seen that uh, yesterday Caleb experienced a little bit of a trauma, and because he experienced a trauma, so did his dad. Um, But uh, we were sitting on the couch together, and uh, I was doing a little bit of message preparation, and he was getting ready for nap time, and so it's kind of about the time of day where he, you know, gets up on the couch, and he's kind of rubbing at his eyes, and you you know, he's not quite with it, he's getting ready for a nap, but he's a little bit too... uh, pent up, and he's got a little bit more energy to get out, so he's kind of fighting it, right? He, he, he's not quite ready to go down. And so I'm sitting there with him on the couch. I figured I'd put him next to me on the couch. He'll be right next to me. He might calm down a little bit. As he calms down, I'll bring him upstairs, and he'll be able to take his nap. I take my eyes off him for literally two seconds, right? Couldn't have been more than that, and if it is more than that, I will vehemently d- disagree with you. Um, I take my eyes off for two seconds, and what happens? He stands up on the couch and then takes a running dive off the front of the couch, head first onto the coffee table, right? Um, Hits the edge of the coffee table, rolls onto the floor. It is the most horrendous thud you could ever experience as a parent. And I look down, of course, the shock hasn't quite worn off of him, and I see above his forehead about an inch and a half gash that is, uh, you know, got to be down to the bone because my knees are totally gone at this point as I'm looking at it. He's looking at me and seeing the shock in my face as I'm looking at him, and I start freaking out, right? So I, and immediately what happens is the, because it's a facial wound, it starts gushing blood like you've never seen before. And so I spend the next half an hour trying to stem the, the flow and, and push back the tide that is rolling out of his forehead at this point. And, uh, and of course, I'm there by myself because Mandy's, this is one, her one weekend to work, and so she isn't home to help me out at all on this. And so I make the bad idea of deciding to give her a call when we're in the middle of this whole exchange. You moms are like, what in the world were you thinking? Why would you do that? I just don't know. I can't give you an answer. I haven't, I haven't formulated that yet. Maybe if this message came next week, I would have an answer for you. So I give her a call. She had just left work, uh, but she's at probably half an hour away. And so it was obviously the hardest car ride for her that she's had to experience in a while. Um, and, uh, and so I spend the next half an hour or so waiting for her to come home, trying to stop the blood up so that... Uh, when, when she gets home, we can go to the ER together and try to get him stitched up. 
Um, so, uh, you know, obviously you have a lot of time to think uh, in, a, in a situation like that. Um, there's nowhere to go. You're just trying to do one thing and one thing only, and that is just find enough paper towels in the house um, to, to, uh, to keep this thing from, from going to, to code orange, right? Um, but you have a lot of time to think. And so I'm sitting there thinking, and one of the things that, that struck me as I'm sitting there with my son, uh, who is wondering, Dad, what in the world is going on and why have you done this to me? Um, I'm thinking to myself that there are certain things that I want for my kids, right? As a parent, it's just natural. You want certain things for your kids, and as a parent, you know it is your responsibility uh, to instill in them certain things that you know that they need to know and that nobody else will tell them apart from you as their parent. It's your responsibility, right? No one else is going to tell them. No one else is going to model it for them. As a parent, you want to be the one to instill in them what they need for life. You need to take responsibility for what's said. And here's what I'm learning as I go. Those opportunities don't just arrive. They, they don't just come by chance. As a parent, you need to take the opportunities that you have to make those conversations happen. Because if you don't, those opportunities will pass you by. Will they not? Those of you who have been parents for a long time, you're nodding your heads because it's absolutely true. What I realized as I was sitting there with him, here's another thought, is that I won't always be there for him. I won't. As a parent, I'm, I'm, I cannot always be there for him. I'm sitting six inches away from him, and I can't stop this, this uh, jackknife dive off of the couch. What good will I be when I'm a half an hour away, or five hours away, or on the other side of the world? I will not always be there for him. And so, I need to use every moment that I do have to remind him of what's most important. Chances are good, though, if you're a parent, you've had this same experience, correct? Especially if you've raised boys, right? Um, but every parent goes through this process, and you know, one, you have a limited amount of time, and two, it is your responsibility to tell them what's most important in life, correct? Um, even if you're not a parent, though, you may be in a, a whole host of situations with friends or with neighbors. You, have, you may have parents that you're starting to realize aren't going to be around forever. And there are some difficult conversations that you know you need to have. You know you need to communicate to them what is most important in life. And you have a short amount of time to do it. What do you say to those people in your life? What is most important? What do you say if you have one shot to say it? The reason I frame it this way is because this is the situation that Jesus is faced with. We are now, as we pick up the story in Mark 14, less than 24 hours away from his crucifixion. And he is about to gather his closest followers and say to them, this is what is most important. I have a short amount of time left there are some things that you need to know. And so I'm going to use the opportunity that I have left to communicate to you what I need to do before I leave this place. 
And so as we're thinking through this for our own lives and our own relationships, what is most important to communicate? Or what do I need to, to be communicated? What is most important in my life? What, what do I need to get hold of and get grasp of for myself to know what is most important in life? As I'm thinking of my own time and how short it is, For all of us, though, we should be asking this. What is Jesus about to say? And would he say the same thing to me? What is Jesus about to say and would he say the very same things to me? Those are the questions that we need to wrestle with because if Jesus is using his last moments on this earth to communicate this, and as we've been looking throughout this whole series, it's a process of us rethinking our lives in light of him, being followers of him, being changed by him as he works in our lives, then we need to be honed in on what he says at this meal. Because it is vitally important. So let's pick up the story. We're going to start in verse 12 of Mark 14. It says this, On the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. I want you to take note of that phrase. It's pretty important because Mark includes it for a reason. Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And so he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples left, they went into the city, and they found things just as Jesus told them. So they prepared the Passover. If you weren't here last week, let me kind of recap for you. What Jesus is doing with his disciples is he is sitting down to a meal to celebrate a Jewish festival called Passover. Passover was a celebration which remembers for the entire nation of Israel what happened during the Exodus. And God had been... Uh, sending plague after plague to the nation of Egypt who was holding Israel as slaves and captives in bondage. He was sending all these things so that the Pharaoh would say to his people, all right, you can be let go. Go and be with your God. Be released. You are now free. You are no longer a slave. Go to the land that he has for you. And up until this time, it says that Pharaoh's heart had been hardened over and over and over again. He wasn't going to let him go. And so God sends this final plague to the nation of Egypt, and he says, every firstborn child of yours will die tonight unless you take an unspotted lamb, you kill that lamb, you take the blood, and you paint it over your doorpost. Israel is my firstborn son, and I want my firstborn back. And if you don't release my firstborn, I'm going to take your firstborn. That's what he says to every family in Egypt. And so the ones who had faith in God that this was going to happen took refuge by killing this lamb and painting its blood over their house. And so when God came in judgment of the nation, those families that had done this in faith, they were spared. The lamb that was slain took the judgment for them. It was their substitute for the judgment that they were to receive, and because the lamb took it instead of them, the next morning they were free to go. 
It purchased freedom for them. And so what Jesus is doing and what the nation of Israel had done up into that time is that they would year after year celebrate this same act by gathering together in a meal whereby they would take a lamb and they would do the very same thing and then they would eat the lamb in faith and they would say, the lamb who was slain took away my sin. I was free because of it. And so Jesus is going to have this very same meal with his disciples. And he's saying, I want you to make preparations, which means go and get a lamb. Bring it to the house, because we're going to have a feast. And we're going to celebrate what God had done previously in our nation. The purpose of the Passover meal goes something like this. It was to transfer the greatest aspect of your identity to your children. It was to say to you and to them, here is what's most important in life. In fact, um, when they would gather together, the person presiding over the meal would say to the participants of the feast, why is this night different from every other night? And the response would be something like, because this was the night that the lamb was slain and because I went free. Right? This meal was supposed to remind them of God's presence in their life and his ability to free them as children. And throughout the meal, they would do different acts, and they still do it today. And and our youth are going to be doing a, a Seder, which is this very Passover meal, which celebrates many of these same things. Um, one of the things that they would do is that they would remind themselves of the four promises of God that were given in, in Exodus 6, verse 6 and 7. It says this, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them. I will redeem you with the outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And so they would celebrate this with four different cups which would symbolize each of the four promises of God here. And you can think of them as sort of I wills, right? God is saying, I will rescue you from Egypt. I will free you from slavery. I will redeem you by my power. And I will renew my relationship with you. And they would eat this meal together year after year after year after year. Why? For one purpose. One reason only. So they would not forget what God had done for them. So they would not forget what God had done for them. Why is this so important? Because as human beings, we are pretty prone to forget stuff, aren't we? We are forgetful people by nature. We need reminders constantly. Otherwise, we lose ourselves. I'm shocked at how often I forget things, and Mandy needs to remind me of them, right? She'll tell me something on Tuesday. By Wednesday, I've completely forgotten it. And you know that the reality is she tells me on Tuesday, and by Tuesday at 4 o'clock, I've forgotten it. I don't even wait till Wednesday to forget. It's just gone. And unless I have something, a symbol, a, a, a note, something enacted to remind me, I forget. Why? Because that's who we are. If not reminded constantly, over and over again, we forget because we're forgetful people. 
Here's the thing. The single greatest assault to your faith and to mine is, is not pain. It's, it's not being ripped from our family. It, it's not the temptation that we feel. The single greatest assault to your faith is that you would forget who you are. Because if, if you can be tempted into forgetting who you are as a person, then everything else follows like a, like a set of dominoes. Because if you forget who you are, then no longer will you act like who you really aren't. You'll act like who you aren't. You need to be reminded of your identity. Otherwise, if you lose that identity, you lose who you are. People know this all the time uh, when they struggle with somebody in the family who has Alzheimer's, right? In a sense, they forget who they are. And because they forget who they are, they're not able to function as a human being in society. So they need more care and more people in their lives 24 hours a day to help them because they've forgotten their identity. It's the same thing for Jesus' disciples. It's the same thing for us. If you forget your identity, then you have absolutely no chance to fulfill the mission that God has in your life. And Jesus knows that it's the same thing for his disciples. He has got a huge, huge mission for them to accomplish, does he not? Jesus is not going to be around for very much longer. And once he is gone, it is their show. In fact, the book of Acts talks about the beginning of that process and God working through them to begin this entire thing called Christianity. An enormous job. And they are not going to be able to do it if they forget who they are. And so this entire meal is built around this reality. Who are you? And why does it matter? Specifically, we're going to talk about three things. Three things that Jesus wants them to remember. And I think if we are going to be followers after Jesus, we need to remember these same three things. This is important because in a moment, we're going to celebrate the same Passover feast as Jesus did. We're going to commune together, so to speak. And we need to understand for us, maybe with new eyes, what are the things that we need to remember for ourselves. And coincidentally, as I was sitting on the floor with Caleb uh, yesterday, and after much reflection, I would tell Caleb these same three things. At the end of the day, I want him to know these three things. If he gets all the other things in the world, but he misses the boat on these three things, I will have failed him as a father. The first thing is this. We need a new Savior. We need a new Savior. Verse 22, it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread. He gave thanks and broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, Take it. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them. And they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Here's what would happen in a typical Passover feast. During every meal, the person presiding over that feast would pick up a piece of bread, unleavened bread, and would bless it by saying, this is the bread of our iniquity. And what he's saying is, he's referring back to a time when Israel was traveling through the desert and they needed to eat uh, bread that was just out of the oven, right? We talked about this last week. It didn't have time to rise, 
And so they needed to make haste and get out of Egypt as quick as, as they could. And so they brought the bread with them before it had a chance to rise, unleavened bread. And so from that point on, they would celebrate by eating that same kind of bread. And what he's saying, it, every, every feast, they would hold this bread up and say, this is the bread of our affliction, which meant we needed to suffer through some very painful things in order to gain freedom, did we not? We had to escape Egypt. We had to go through the Red Sea. We had to live for 40 years in the desert. All of it was to purchase our freedom as people. And they would remind themselves of that process and that pain over and over again by saying, this is the bread of our affliction. You notice what Jesus does, though? Does he say that? He says something different, doesn't he? He holds up the very same bread, and what does he say? This is my body. Which is a little bit like him saying, this is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my affliction. Get this. Jesus, at this point, is not looking into the past and saying, didn't we experience some horrible things? He is looking to the future and he's saying, I am going to experience some horrible things. I am going to suffer and I am going to die and I am going to be crucified on a cross. You're going to view it all, but I want you to know this is the bread of my affliction. And through this, I will purchase your freedom. You might be asking then, okay, so how does he do it? And this is where I want to come back to that verse that I told you to take note of before. Every Passover feast had a lamb, correct? You could not have it. This wasn't like a vegetarian or vegan meal. When you went to a Passover feast, there's lamb. The two go together. You can't have one without the other. You notice anything missing from Mark's description of their meal together? They got bread. They got wine. What don't they got? There's no lamb. What gives, right? This is a feast. And now you're saying this is a vegetarian feast? What is going on? I would be really disappointed. I don't know about you at this point. Are you kidding me? There's no lamb? There's no mention of it in any of the Gospels about any kind of meat being present at this particular Passover. Why do you think that is? We talked about it last week, right? Uh, John, Jesus' cousin, even alludes to the fact in John's Gospel, the first time he sees Jesus coming to be baptized, what does he say about Jesus? He says this, Look the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Look, here he comes. This is the Lamb. This is the one who will take away the sins of the world. It is no longer about the past. It is all about Jesus. And Jesus comes to this meal, and it would make absolutely no sense for him to bring a substitute lamb, would it not? No sense at all. Why? Because he's it. He's it. And you know he's it by the fact that he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. So no longer is our identity going to be defined by the fact that so many years ago in the past, people painted the blood of their lamb over their house and were delivered from Egypt. Because I am leading a new exodus today. It starts now. 
And it has everything to do with my blood. And when my blood is painted over your house, you get freedom, not just from Egypt, but from every kind of bondage and slavery and sin and even death. Jesus' love, I think you need to know this, is a substitutionary love. He takes the fall so that we could go free. He takes the fall so that we can live. He got what we deserve. The sin, the guilt, the brokenness of the world, instead of falling on us, it fell on Him. So that God's love and acceptance for the first time could fall on us. Um, And every kind of substitutionary love works this way, doesn't it? Anytime there's a self-sacrificial kind of love, it sort of works in the same way. I'll give you an example. Um, if for those of you who've been and can remember going through school, you know that there are different cliques, right? There are different groups of people, and all of them have some kind of social status imbued with them. Some of them are jocks. Some of them are the cool and popular people. Some of them are the geeks, and they kind of do their own thing. And then some of them are like the outcasts and the uncool, right? They are the people that nobody associates with, nobody sits next to at lunchtime. Nobody wants to be around those people, and they enjoy making fun of and ridiculing those people for not being part of the in crowd. And so picture this. You're, You're in this environment, and you're part of the more cool side. But you see this person who is outcasted and ostracized from the rest of the society. You know the scorn and the shame that they get day after day for being who they are. What happens to you if you choose to sit with that person at lunchtime? What happens to you? The same ridicule that fell on that person now falls on you, doesn't it? Why in the world are they hanging out with them? They must be just like them, I bet. How uncool are they? And you end up receiving the same ridicule as that person. Why? Because when you choose to associate yourself with them, you end up suffering the same consequence. Works the same way with Jesus. Jesus, who was sinless and spotless, the accepted and loved Son of God comes to earth and he associates himself with who? The uncool. Right? The ostracized, the outcast, the unaccepted, those who were separated from God. And he says, I am going to go and to die the death that they should have received for themselves. And he ends up receiving the same punishment that we would have, does he not? The only difference is when he receives it, we are relieved from it. That's the good news of Jesus. But it's not enough to kind of know this, right? We can understand it intellectually, and for a very long time, I understood what it meant to that, that Jesus came to this world and died and rose again. I knew all the mechanics of it, but I had no idea what it meant for me. And, and while I believed in all of it, I was living a separate lifestyle. And my lifestyle went something like this. Yeah, I know you exist, Jesus, 
I know you're good. I know you died for my sins. But I'm going to try to be a good person and live a good life also. And if I do both of those things in tandem, then at the end of the day, um, the good things that I do will be counted to me. And the bad things that I do, hopefully you'll be able to cover over those because you did a lot on my behalf too. And so we play this interchanging game where we try to live the life that we could. And Jesus, we know that he exists for us. And we hope that at the end of the day, those two things will equal out to us being accepted by God. But Luke, when he tells this story, he adds this phrase, do this in remembrance of me. The context is this. Every Passover meal, you needed to eat everything that was on the table in order to say to everyone else and to God, this is true of me too. And we know this from experience, right? You can't eat, you can't show up at a meal and look at all the stuff on the table and then walk away and go, mmm, that was good, right? <laughs> Nobody shows up to Thanksgiving dinner and goes, wow, that smells really good. You know, I've just had my full, I'm going to go sit on the couch and watch some television. No, everybody sits down at the table and you eat. Because you know that the only way that you get the nourishment from the food is by taking it into your body, correct? And it works the same way with this meal. We too need to take in what Jesus is doing for us, to receive it actively. And so what we're saying when we come up to the table and we dip the bread in the juice and we eat it for ourselves, we are saying, I have absolutely no ability to gain acceptance before God on my own. I need the nourishment that this meal provides just as much as I need my next physical meal. Because I know if I don't receive what he's done for me and to know that it covers everything that I've done wrong and all my good attempts at doing stuff right, then I might as well be like that person that goes to a meal and doesn't find any nourishment for what's put out on the table. We come to the table knowing that Jesus has done enough for us, that there's nothing that we have to do in response except take it by faith, knowing that it was enough for us. And so here's the thing. I would say to Caleb this very same thing. I would remind my son not to trust in himself, not to trust in me, and not to trust in anyone else's Savior but to fully, wholly, and only trust in Jesus as his Savior. To look to him and him alone for his identity. And to know that when you come to the table of Jesus, that you are accepted and loved by God and that you are redeemed by him as your Savior. There is no more important lesson than this. There is no more important thing for him to remember than this. Secondly, I would say this, that we need to be reminded that we need a new family. Um, this is, the Passover is, one of the few Jewish ceremonies that was celebrated outside of the temple courts. It was actually celebrated in the homes with your family. Most of the things that you did around the calendar year in, in Israel 
were centered around going somewhere else and being with somebody else and doing something else. This was the one thing that you would sit around your own table with your own family and eat your own meal together. But Jesus doesn't do that, does he? Do you notice that? He doesn't say to Peter, hey, we're going to go to your house with your mom. She's going to serve us dinner, and we're going to be around like a family in your place. And he doesn't say, hey, I've got some things to tell you, but I want you to go to your own families and celebrate your own dinner with them. He actually pulls them from their families to a centralized place, and he sits them around one table, and he says to them, we're going to celebrate this together. Why do you think he does that? Because he is enacting a new family. And he's telling them, look around you. Look to your left and to your right. Because the people that you see before you, these are your brothers and sisters. And so I would encourage you guys, look around you. Look to your left and your right. Go ahead. Scary, isn't it? What in the world, right? But just like the family that you came from, you don't get to choose your brothers and sisters, right? But do you see the resemblance? (laughs) When anyone comes and eats the bread and drinks the wine, they are reminded not only that Jesus is their Savior, but they have been brought into a new family. And no matter what the family is that you've come from, God offers you a fresh start and a new day in his family. And I know that this can be a a difficult reality for many of us because many of us have come from broken families. We have come from places where our family experience hasn't been all that it should have been cracked up to be, right? And so we might say to ourselves, look, I'm not looking for a new family. I'm looking to anything except family, right? I want to do this thing on my own. For the first time, I want to be independent and to do this by myself. But God never offers it to us that way. He always says, I have saved you and now I have made you part of a new family. And you're brothers and sisters, whether you like it or not. And it's a good thing. We know it's a good thing because Paul puts it this way. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. We have been adopted for the first time into a new family with new brothers and sisters. And you know what? It wasn't out of shame. It wasn't a mistake. No matter how you came into this world and you're thinking to yourself, they didn't want me, they didn't need me, they didn't respect me, they didn't love me, they didn't care for me. But know this, when God adopts you into his family, he does so in love. It was no accident. It was no mistake. He loves you. He cares for you. And it actually brings him pleasure to know that you are one of his. How amazing is that? This is what I would tell my son. Don't ever try to live your life for Jesus alone. And don't ever look to your earthly family to supplant the family that God has placed you a part of. Because as much as we try to care for you, 
as much as we try to point you in the right direction, as much as we try to do everything that we can for you, all of that will be imperfect. And if you look to us as your perfect family, you will find yourself disappointed every time. You need a new family. And all of us do. Last, I would say this. We need a new Savior. We need a new family. Finally, we need a new future. Notice Jesus ends the meal by saying this. He said to them, I tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. What Jesus is saying here is he's making them an oath. It's kind of like saying, I will die before this happens. And it turns out to be that that's exactly the case. He's raising his cup and saying, I'm drinking this cup, but I will not drink it again until I see you guys anew in the kingdom. I'm going to prepare a future for you, is what he says elsewhere. The Passover was all about celebrating the past. And Jesus is saying, this is not about the past anymore. This is about the future. And this meal is a precursor to the feast that is to come. It is a future that I'm preparing for you, and it will cost me everything to prepare it. And so we know when we come to celebrate this same communion with him, that when we come to do it, we know that there is a greater feast to come in the kingdom which Jesus is preparing for us. And that the things that we eat to get today are like scraps that have fallen from that table onto ours. We know that one day we will sit in the presence of Jesus, our King, and celebrate how good and how great He is. And so I would say to Caleb, Jesus provides you a far better future than anyone that I can provide. Because every attempt that I try to give you, every inheritance that I try to build up for you, I could make one bad mistake and it could be wiped out forever and you'd be left with nothing. So as much as I try to do as a father for you to give you a good future and hope, all of it will be incomplete. And all of it may in fact be taken away from you. But Jesus gives you an inheritance which will never spoil and never fade and never tarnish. And it's kept for you in heaven where he will meet you one day in glory. We're about to take communion together, and so I want you to be able to see it differently today. So often, I think to myself as we come up and take communion, are we getting it? Are we, are we doing it right? Are, are we experiencing the right thing? Because I was taught that uh, kind of growing up, Communion was a part of my church experience. And I don't know if it was ever said to me, but what I heard was, you need to come up and you need to uh, think about it in a certain way and feel certain things in order for it to do certain things. And so as a kid, if you went up and just kind of took it, you know, not very seriously and just kind of came up and didn't really reflect on it, then you were taking it improperly and it wouldn't, kind of do the trick for you. And so a lot of us bring this understanding into our adult life and we think, I need to feel remorseful, I need to feel 
sorry. I need to feel guilty and, and to come up and take it in this way. And I want to say to you, it is not the case. Because if you come up thinking about yourself, then you've missed the entire point. All of us should be coming up thinking only in our minds of what Jesus is and what he's done for us. It is all about him, and it is not about us. And so I'm thinking in my mind of taking communion today and uh, how I would explain that to Caleb. What would I say to him if if I come up and I I take it and I go back to my seat? And he's a little bit older now, obviously, but he kind of turns to me and he goes, Dad, what is that all about? Why do you do what you do? Why have you taken these things? What does it mean? that my answer to him would be very much like the answer that God told Moses to give to Israel when he said this. On that day, tell your son this. I do this because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. I walk up knowing that I have not purchased my own freedom. I take the elements knowing that it is not my body and it is not my blood which gives me acceptance before the Father. I take those things knowing that Jesus is good and that his death purchased for me life and freedom. And then I walk back to my seat with the full knowledge that God has done everything necessary to gain my acceptance at his son, to adopt me into his family, and to give me new hope for a future. I want you to imagine for yourself what it must have been like to be an an Israelite in Egypt on your way out. And somebody comes to you and says to you, why are, are you doing this? Where are you going? What is your identity? Who are you? And what you would say in response is something like this. I was a slave under the sentence of death but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb and escaped that bondage. And now God lives in my midst and together as a new family we are following Him to the promised land. Folks, that is the same reality that we celebrate when we come together. Don't ever forget it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that uh, you saw fit to send your Son to this world to live the life that we couldn't, to die the death that we deserved, and to rise again. And we celebrate that when we come forward and we participate in communion. There are things that we know that we need to understand in this world, but I pray, God, that we would know that there is nothing more important than knowing that you are the Savior that we need, that you provide the family that we need to be a part of, and that you give us the future that only you can give. And so as we respond to you, as we celebrate through communion, I pray, God, that you would remind us of what's most important in life. That we who were once slaves to sin and death 
through your Son and His sacrifice have been set free. And that we are on our way to a good and new place that you provide for us. I also pray as the ushers come forward for our offering this morning that we would give not out of obligation, but that we would give cheerfully and joyfully knowing that you have given us all things. And so we give back not out of obligation, but joy because of what you've done in our lives. As a church, I pray that we would take these gifts and offerings and tithes we would use them responsibly and well for your kingdom so that it would move forward so that others would know of your grace and your love so that we could welcome them into that grace and into your family. We ask all this in Christ's name.